South Africans don't really yet have a full appreciation of the rapid way in which this disease can cause havoc. And we've seen that in countries, in the UK, we saw that in Italy, we saw that in New York. Uh, you know, in, in New York, patients were dying in the corridors because it just, there weren't beds, they just were overwhelmed. The whole system was, was just buckling under the huge strain of rapid number of cases growing every day. So we don't really have a sense of that. Hello and a warm welcome to this ninth edition of a series of webinars brought to you by Investec Wealth and Investment under the theme Markets and Investing in the Times of COVID-19. My name is Gugule Tumfupi. I'm a financial journalist, global moderator and broadcaster. And it's my pleasure to welcome each and every one of you from your respective places across the globe to join us in what will prove to be a critical conversation today. Now, over the last few episodes, we've had the opportunity to engage with economists, investment strategists, psychologists, epidemiologists, and today we seek to dive deeper into the intersection between public policy and virology. And we speak to an individual who stands firm in the center of both these areas, Professor Salim Abdul Karim. A familiar face to many South Africans, as he's certainly been the, at the forefront of our fight against the COVID-19 pandemic, Professor Karim is a clinical infectious disease epidemiologist and chair of the Ministerial Advisory Committee on COVID-19. He serves on this board with additional researchers, scientists, epidemiologists, and virologists. He also is the director of CAPRISA, the Center for the AIDS Program of Research in South Africa. Now, Professor Karim has uh, had previous experience in terms of addressing epidemics in South Africa, specifically the HIV and AIDS. Now, for many of you who might be joining this webinar for the first time, you'll be well aware that technology can be a friend and sometimes a very difficult friend to work with. So should your network slow down or the video begin buffering, we'd like to encourage you to press the refresh button perhaps move or change your internet connectivity from Wi-Fi to 3G or try a different browser. We'd like to remind you that in light of these conversations, Investec really seeks to be a partner to its clients, especially in these out-of-the-ordinary times, by guiding you through much of these challenges and concepts, by not only providing you with internal insight, but also seeking some additional advice and expertise from outside advisors. So we look forward to this conversation and would like to actually deep dive into it now with Professor Karim to give us some feedback into the lay of the landscape when it comes to South Africa's address of COVID-19. Professor Karim, uh, many South Africans are quite familiar with your face as well as the feedback that you've often provided us with in the last four months. But we're also feeling a sense of lockdown fatigue as many South Africans are fighting to get their economic activity back, getting their sense of freedom back. One thing that is quite concerning is that as we witness the rising number of infections in South Africa, we're now also able to actually put names and faces to many of these uh, infected individuals. And this really brings COVID-19 a lot closer to home for many of us as South Africans, as I have several colleagues as well as a family member who have now become infected. How close has it hit for you? when it comes to COVID-19 and the reality of the battle that we're fighting? Well, you know, it's uh, quite an amazing challenge that we deal with. And at a personal level, 
a very good friend of mine, Dr. Peter Piot, who is the person who discovered the Ebola virus. When he got ill with uh, COVID-19, I was just taken aback as to how sick he got and how he, when he went to hospital and in our communications with him, we learned and he has now written about his experiences in the New York Times and in Science about how it just caught up with him and how he struggled to walk up the stairs and realize that something was wrong. And then he became quite ill and needed to be hospitalized and receive oxygen. So it really hit home. And closer to you know, my workplace, we've had individuals at work, including one of our pharmacists who acquired the virus. So this is everywhere. And we are now in a situation where we you know, are just learning about the consequences of it and how to cope with it. As you mentioned, it's hit very close to home and even individuals who are well experienced with, within the world of virology. Uh, and this begs the question that many South Africans are asking, if our lockdown levels have actually proven to be successful, if at all? Well, the, you know, we've been hearing about this disease. On the, at the end of December, I was on vacation with my family in the Drakensberg and I get a little alert on my iWatch saying that there's a cluster of cases of pneumonia in China. And I looked at it and I said, oh, that's not a problem. That sounds like SARS. And, you know, the Chinese have dealt with SARS before, shouldn't be a problem. And I didn't give it a second thought. In fact, I didn't even tell my wife about it. And it was about 10 days later that I saw the first papers come out that showed the sequence. And that's when I realized, Oh, oh, this is different. This is something else. And now we, you know, we began to hear the cases that were occurring in China and the people that were dying. Next thing we hear, it spread to Italy. And then on the 5th of March, it all changed. Suddenly, what was a disease everywhere else in the world was now a disease right here at home. It became something immediate became something real for us. And when we you know, were dealing with this in the first two to three weeks, it was just amazing to watch how fast the epidemic grew. In the first three weeks, the number of cases were doubling every two days. We had an epidemic that was growing as fast as the one in the UK. And because our populations are similar size, although quite different, obviously, I was looking at the UK and saying, if we follow what we're seeing in the UK, we're going to be in desperate trouble. I mean, by the beginning of April, we were going to have hundreds of thousands of cases. And when the president announced the state of disaster. I mean, we had barely, you know, a handful of cases at the time. It was just about 10 days after the first case. And two weeks later, when he announced uh, the lockdown, we only had 402 cases, no deaths. And so people are wondering, what's going on? I mean, we see the, you know, the television pictures, but this is not a serious problem. Well, I have to say, 
the president was prescient because his action made all the difference. On the 26th of March, the day on which we had the lockdown, the number of cases in South Africa drastically dropped. We moved from an epidemic doubling every two days to an epidemic doubling every 15 days. The virus transmission had slowed, slowed dramatically. I mean, to the point where it's when you look at the actual graph, you see this dramatic downturn in the number of cases that we were seeing each day. But we all knew, and on Easter Monday, when I took the nation into confidence and explained to them the underlying epidemiology, then we all knew that this lockdown was not sustainable. We'd, we had to ease the lockdown. And when we eased the lockdown, we expected cases would rise. And so when we eased the lockdown into level four, the virus started spreading more quickly. The doubling time went to 12 days. And now that we are in level three, the doubling time is going down even further. In fact, when you look at the most recent data in South Africa, that just over a week after the lockdown had been eased to level three, I mean, level three in South Africa is more like, you know, level one plus, yeah, because most things you can do now. And because we have so much of movement, the virus is now spreading rapidly in every province. And because of density, Gauteng has the highest, uh, you know, uh, increase in the number of cases because you would expect with the amount of movement of people and the density, the virus would grow fastest in Gauteng. And it's to be to Gauteng's credit that they were that they were able to contain the spread down to a minimum up to that point. But now we are going to see a rapid increase in cases, and we know that we are in the most awkward of situations because you would expect that we would ease the lockdown when we had containment. In other words, when the cases were minimal. But in fact, we are easing the lockdown as the number of cases is rising. And that's the case in many places. We are not alone in this. India, Pakistan, Russia, all in the same boat. They're all releasing and easing their restrictions at the time when their cases are going up. And so we expect that our cases will go up. What's going to be central now is that we've got to use our other tools. We've got to use more than the lockdown now. We've got to ensure that we can get people to take up the, the key tools of social distancing, wearing masks and hand hygiene in order to control this disease. We can't depend on a lockdown much longer because it's just not sustainable to continue. It's quite critical that you mention that, Prof, because uh, many South Africans made the assumption that we might find ourselves returning to tighter restrictions in certain hotspots. Do you see that happening within South Africa? And is it part of the general global best practice? I think it all depends on how we deal with uh, the rapid increase in cases. So we saw from our experiences in HIV, 
And we also saw more recently from the experiences in New York that as the number of cases rises quite rapidly, you reach a point where many people know a family member, a friend, a work colleague, a neighbor, or a famous person who became infected and possibly who died. When that happens, this disease becomes personal. When it becomes personal, you then have a personal motivation to change your behavior. So until then, you know, you'll see people putting their masks on their chin like it makes any difference. But when it becomes personal, they take prevention seriously. So that happened in New York drastically, just changed like that. I saw that, you know, I've been doing HIV research for more than 30 years. I, I saw that in HIV. So we expect that that will happen. People will take the prevention measures much more seriously. If it doesn't, then we're going to have to find alternatives. And part of those alternatives, what I called an alternative of last resort, has to be a restriction of movement. Because if we allow unrestricted movement to occur without mitigation, without prevention being in place, when the virus, when the virus is spreading rapidly close to peak, we will be in deep trouble in terms of the way in which it will just overwhelm all our healthcare services and people will die. And that's what we're trying to avoid. We've been trying to avoid exactly that scenario. So to me, uh, in reintroducing stricter restrictions should only be a matter of last resort. And I think that last resort will come at a point when cases are continuing to increase rapidly and people are not implementing prevention voluntarily. Quite critical that you mentioned that it's more about personal behavior, which is something that everyone across the globe does need to prioritize. But coupled with this, Professor Karim, I understand that we've seen incredible developments across the globe and even here internally in South Africa in terms of collaborative approaches to find interventions and treatments in order to um, minimize uh, the deaths and uh, infections of COVID-19. Give us some insight as to how South Africa is faring on this front in terms of vaccinations, uh, testing that we understand is going to start um, and ongoing research and development in collaboration with its global peers. So when you look at the approaches that we have taken, firstly, you know, just scaling up uh, testing for COVID. Uh, you know, when you think about in March, we were testing on average 121 people a day, and now we're testing over 30,000 a day. We've rapidly scaled up testing. But we understand we have limitations in that, and testing is a key part of our strategy together with quarantine and so on. Similarly, we have huge programs in place to try and move people from a situation where they were anxious. We call it you know, shifting from anxiety to self-efficacy. In other words, enabling them to translate their, their concerns and their fears about this virus and this disease into something that they can control, that, they, that their risk is in their hands. And so there's huge programs in place and research looking at that. But at a, at a biological level, we have several studies underway. 
studies looking at convalescent serum, patients who've recovered, trying to understand what antibodies they have and whether that might make a difference. And then last week, we heard the good news that the Oxford University vaccine uh, trial has now been extended and is, uh, has been initiated here in South Africa. So we have a vaccine trial underway. We have uh, trials of other interventions. We have several treatment trials, including the World Health Organization's uh, Solidarity Trial. Uh, and we have a series of other studies underway that are you know, important for us. Let me give you a simple example. We need to monitor the genetic mutations in this virus. So as the virus spreads, we will expect it to mutate, as all viruses do. We need to monitor those mutations because if we make a vaccine against that strain, we have to check that it's still effective against this strain, you know, eight months later, because the virus is different eight months later. And so that's what's been put in place. Government, through the Department of Science and Innovation, have brought together a consortium that are monitoring how the virus is mutating because that feeds into our vaccine research. So we are very fortunate that a lot of this infrastructure and capability to do this kind of high quality and high-end research was actually built for HIV and TB. And we are now piggybacking on all of that infrastructure built over decades to be able to respond to COVID-19. Specifically on the vaccine, Professor Karemi, is it also mutating? Uh, um, for some of us who are not very technically inclined, uh, in other words, will it evolve, will it adapt, and are we seeing that take place in South Africa? We understand that um, when we vaccinate somebody, we're trying to elicit an immune response. That immune response needs to be able to attack the virus and to neutralize it in a person who becomes infected or gets exposed to it. As it stands right now, for diseases like influenza, we understand that every season the influenza has changed. It's a different influenza, we need a different vaccine. And we wait for the Northern Hemisphere to have its influenza. We base the strain on what they had. And then we vaccinate here, thinking that that's the strain that's going to come here, which is most often the case. So we know that for diseases like influenza, we need to do that. For other diseases, like measles, there is no change. The virus mutates so little. And the area, the, the part of the virus, what we call the epitope, it's that section of the surface of the virus that the antibody is going to attach to. That section is highly conserved. In other words, it doesn't mutate. Or if it mutates, it's very minor. And if it does mutate, often the virus is then unable to grow. In other words, it sort of, it destroys itself if it mutates that part. And so in this particular virus, in the coronavirus, the vaccines have mostly been targeting the spike protein. Now, 
you know, it's called a coronavirus because it looks like a crown. It's got all these spikes on it. And on that spike is a particular protein that attaches to human cells. Without that spike, this virus is just a harmless environmental virus. It can't infect human cells. And so the vaccines have targeted that spike protein in order to attach to it and neutralize it. If the virus mutates that spike protein, it might find it actually disables itself. It can't now attach. The new mutant can't attach to humans. So that's why our vaccine approach focuses on areas that the virus has to conserve because that's where you want to attack it. You raise a very critical point here, uh, Prof, and I guess it goes back to us, our understanding that perhaps uh, life without corona or without COVID-19 particularly might um, continue to exist. So what does this mean then for, for our future prospects in terms of us regaining our lives back? And if we'll ever live in a COVID-19 free world, is that possible? So when we look at you know, how fortunate we have been. And I say that, you know, not just tongue in cheek, but really to explain this to us because it's not always obvious. If you look at our situation in March, we were destined to have a dramatic epidemic. Thousands of people becoming, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, becoming infected. Hospitals being overwhelmed, the system collapsing under the strain of what all of that is going to mean. We averted that. We averted that because we flattened the curve. We flattened the curve because we did well in introducing and maintaining our restrictions under the level five lockdown. And because of the way in which we were able to flatten the curve, we had very few infections. So South Africans don't really yet have a full appreciation of the rapid way in which this disease can cause havoc. And we've seen that in countries, in the UK, we saw that in Italy, we saw that in New York. Uh, you know, in, in New York, patients were dying in the corridors because they just, they weren't beds, they just were overwhelmed. The whole system was, was just buckling under the huge strain of rapid number of cases growing every day. So we don't really have a sense of that. In an odd way, you know, when we were coming to the tail end of the level four lockdown, people were saying to me, you know, you told us this disease was so serious and people were going to die and all of this. And we look out the window and there's nothing. It's, there's no, where's the, where's the problem? You know, you made us go into lockdown and sacrifice our alcohol and our smoking all for nothing. And, you know, we've been sitting at home and there's no, no viral spread. And I said, well, that's the paradox. The reason you are safe at this point and you don't see the cases is because you are at home. And so your staying at home played an important role. But we all understand that if we want to continue that trajectory, we'd have to continue some form of stay at home for a long period. And that's not really viable.
people have to work, people have to eat, we have to get on with our lives, kids have to go to school. So we understand that that has to change. But when we change and we come back, we can't expect that we will now live our lives as we were on the 4th of March before our first case. That's gone. I think we have to just accept that that world has now, it's in the past. We are now in a new situation. Some people refer to it as the new normal. You can call it whatever you like, but we have to now understand and put in place the processes to protect us from a threat like this virus. And I'm not specifically referring only to this coronavirus. If, if this coronavirus could come into humans from bats through pangolins in all likelihood, we should expect that there are many others that are also in that situation, that we are at risk of other viruses, other, other kinds of diseases. And, you know, so we need to prepare ourselves to be able to reduce and mitigate that risk. And that means we're going to have to change some of our customs, some of our ways in which we work. The days in which you greeted somebody with a hug and a handshake uh, are no longer. We have to find a new way in which we're going to live. But live, we shall. Live in a way that we have control over that risk. That's what we have. And in many ways, South Africa has a distinct advantage. And that distinct advantage is that we come from a philosophy that we don't just care about ourselves, our individual risk. We care about our communities. And we have a rich history of doing that. And so if we can build on that, that is a fundamental basis on which we can mitigate our risk in the long term. I guess you're highlighting a sense of Ubuntu as to how we uh, need to uh, fight uh, against this uh, active spread of COVID-19 and other illnesses uh, that might arise in the future. And Professor Karim, as you're describing how we need to reevaluate how we live our lives, I think for many South Africans, year after year, you're lucky enough to celebrate a birthday and we blow up out the candles and we'd eat the cake and uh, that in itself brings about a new sense of normality uh, in terms of how we need to interact with our families and friends even in celebrating the most simplest of days like birthdays uh, and speaking of birth and age this leads me to ask uh, a question regarding uh, slightly more mature individuals. It's well documented in the research that you've shared that individuals over the age of 60 are at higher risk uh, in terms of infections uh, and likely death uh, and we've got a question from some of our viewers and listeners and some of the clients from Investec who actually ask what percentage of COVID-19 patients in South Africa between the ages of 70 to 80 would likely survive from having this disease? Have we got any data? If you look at the evidence that we have from our colleagues in China, we saw very clearly that age is the most important predictor of outcomes. 
So age as an independent risk factor is really important. And in China, that those who were above the age of 70 had a, a case fatality rate. In other words, of all the people who were infected, the proportion who passed away ranged from around 9% to up to 15%. In South Africa, we're seeing similar percentages. The, the mortality rate in South Africa is the case fatality rate in South Africa's highest in those who are above 70. So we are seeing a similar trend to what we saw in China. There is one marked difference in South Africa, and it's partly the reason why our case fatality rate is quite low. Uh, when we look at you know, the global situation and we look at several other countries, uh, our case fatality rate, which runs just below 2%, 2% is about the global average, and we are just under that. Uh, part of the reason for that is because of our youthful population, that we have a higher proportion of our population that is below 60 and when you go to a place like Italy, where you've got a large percentage of people, and almost one-fifth of the population is above, 60, above 70, then you have a situation where you've got large numbers of older people, and so you have a higher death rate. In South Africa, even though when you look at it, there are larger numbers of people dying in the younger age groups, meaning you know, 40s, 50s, and so on, uh, that's because there are so many cases in that age because we have more people in that age group. So that's all. That's just to explain why we are in a favorable position as far as mortality. Mortality is markedly influenced by age as an independent risk factor. But we understand that there are several comorbidities that play an important role. From the analysis of the first 1,300 or so cases, uh, uh, deaths that occurred, we have some understanding of that. And there was an, a very good analysis undertaken by colleagues in the Western Cape, uh, where they showed that among the most important predictors in terms of comorbidities, that is, other diseases that people have at the same time as COVID, that diabetes plays a critical role. Diabetes, the attributable fraction is about 56%. So in other words, more than half of all the deaths occurring in the Western Cape have some kind of attribution due to diabetes. So diabetes, obesity, hypertension, malignancy. Those are the main risk factors. HIV turns out to be quite a minor risk factor, principally because HIV affects younger people and the deaths are largely in older people. And TB as well plays a very minor role. So those four things, diabetes, obesity, hypertension, malignancy, they are the main drivers of the comorbidities. What was interesting in the Western Cape analysis is that those who have two or more of these comorbidities are at much higher risk. So it's not just having one of them, but having more than one of them 
places you in a much more riskier situation for an adverse outcome. I just, uh, I was just struck last week, uh, you know, talking about diabetes. Last week, there was a whole slew of new studies that came out that now show or suggest that the coronavirus can actually cause diabetes. I said, what? This virus can cause diabetes? This is a respiratory virus. Okay, I understand. You know, it affects the entire body from head to toe, right? It causes stroke, it causes lung disease, it affects the liver, heart, it affects every part of your body. And even you get COVID toes, a unique medical condition where you get these red blotches in the gaps in your toes. And that it's called COVID toes, as you see it in children. So for disease that affects the body from literally from head to toe can now also cause diabetes. And I looked at the data and I was like, what on earth is going on here? Because this disease defies everything we know. And uh, I then read, I mean, now we understand that for diabetes, our body produces insulin from the beta cells in the pancreas. The beta cells in the pancreas have a receptor called the ACE2 receptor. ACE stands for angiotensin converting enzyme 2 receptor. This receptor is exactly the receptor that this virus binds to. You know, I talked about the spike protein. The spike protein attaches to the ACE2 receptor. And in attaching to the ACE2 receptor, it can also attach to the ACE2 receptor on the beta cells in your pancreas. And it then kills the beta cells. And by killing the beta cells, it kills the cells you need to make insulin and makes you diabetic. So I'm, we are just scratching the surface of what we know about this virus. And now we're understanding that it causes not just a respiratory disease, but when you get an immune response, the cytokine storm, it can cause any one of a number of conditions, literally affecting head to toe. Prof, you've raised so many um, um, critical elements that I think are, are going to be very refreshing for our audience here today. But as you've highlighted, it seems as though this particular disease or illness causes um, a change in not only in human behavior, but is certainly going to call for a change in terms of policy, healthcare policy and controls that are implemented. The same way that with the HIV and AIDS pandemic, we saw a change in uh, approach to healthcare, approach to, to um, um, precautious uh, elements in terms of the ad, uh, increased use of condoms and sexual exchanges and um, um, precautions there. How do you see COVID-19 changing uh, the public policy landscape and ongoing uh, healthcare control? I think we're going to uh, have to find a way to uh, ensure that we create adequate incentives for people to adopt the prevention measures. Because you know, an enforcement and punishment mechanism doesn't really work well in public health. It might work for, you know, for theft and fraud and corruption. I'm not even sure it does for that, but 
for public health, you know, you can't go around finding people, putting them in jail because they don't wear a mask or because they're not social distancing. It's not practical. So we're going to have to find a new way about thinking about the way we utilize incentives. And the reason why that becomes important is that it fundamentally drives our ability to recover as an economy. That, you know, if we had to have a stimulus in the economy at this time, it would be a bit pointless because the cases are rising and people are going to withdraw and people are going to want to stay at home and we are in a situation where the virus and its impact is just about to be felt. But in the post-COVID era, in the post-peak that we're going to deal with, we would want to have a situation where we create a policy framework where people understand the fundamental link that their actions will impact on not just their own livelihood, but the prosperity of our nation. And how we deal with that is going to be important. So it doesn't help when the taxi industry says, if you don't give us money, we are going to defy the processes to uh, stem the spread of this virus. Now, talk about shooting oneself in the foot because the people most likely to get this virus if they do decide to flout the rules is going to be the drivers. So the people who are complaining, they have no livelihood because of this, are the ones who are going to suffer because they are the ones sitting all the time with all these other people who are just temporarily in there. But you can see the problem that they, they, they think they, they, they have a trump card that they will punish the government or the passengers by doing this, right? By saying, no, we're gonna, not going to be 70%. We're going to fill our taxis up, have everybody squashed in there. They're putting themselves at risk. And if, if, if one of their customers does get infected, they can sue them as well. But that's a separate matter. Let me get to the public policy. The public policy I'm, I'm referring to is that we've got to find a way that encourages compliance and adherence by creating the appropriate incentives. And those incentives need not be financial, especially in the current situation where our country doesn't really have the financial might behind it without borrowing even more. And so we're going to have to find those kinds of incentives. And again, because of a lot of the philosophy we follow in our country, the philosophies of ensuring we're trying to do well for, for everybody and that we understand our, in, our interdependence between us in the concept of Ubuntu, we've got to try and bring that to the fore and use that as one of the ways in which we build a new approach. And that new approach, you know, when I go to a restaurant, I should feel confident that this restaurant has undertaken every prevention measure. Not because 
there are some government regulations to do that. Okay, that's important to know that what that they are regulations, but because it's in their interest and in their financial interest to make sure that I, as a client, am going to be safe in their restaurant. Because when I am safe, they are safe. If I am not safe, they are not safe. And so it's their incentive is to keep me safe. And how we build our policies in that way. So that's why I talked about our life from the 4th of March is no more. Where, you know, we were just trying to make a quick buck or we we're trying to do things just in a way that was self-serving. We've got to change that quite a bit. Can we do so successfully? I think our future depends on that. Our future depends on us putting in place the kinds of policies and the kinds of approaches, no matter what we do, whether we go to a sporting event, whether we go to a cultural event, whether we go to a, a religious gathering, whether we go to a restaurant, whether we go on vacation, uh, whether we go to work, whether we go to school, all of these things are going to have to change. And the new normal that they will form part of is going to have to create an environment that protects each one's safety, not just the client's safety, but everybody's safety. Professor Karim, you've uh, given us a lot to think about. Uh, you've also reassured our confidence in some of the uh, systems of the protocols that we're following in South Africa uh, in assuring that we do uh, manage to minimize um, um, higher rates of infection. But as you've highlighted, this is a virus that mutates. It's likely to be here with us for a long time. We need to change our human behavior, review public policy, and our life as we knew it before the 4th of March is not going to be the same anymore. With that said then, what are your projections for the infection rates in South Africa and what do we need to take cognizance of? Um, we are in the middle of 2020. Many South Africans are still looking to resume their sense of normality in terms of holidays, family gatherings, and, and that naturally will have to change. But what do we need to take cognizance of in terms of our life with COVID-19? We thought that... Uh with uh, the way in which this virus spreads, that uh, we will see the first growth of cases and the rapid rise in cases will occur in Johannesburg. Made sense. Most number of foreign visitors, most densely populated, that that's where it was going to start. Well, it didn't. It actually started growing first in the Western Cape. We now have a much better understanding of what happened in the Western Cape. And that at the tail end of the level five lockdown, there were small outbreaks. I referred to it previously as little flames. And they occurred in the checkers, the Kailicha Spa, in the supermarket in Delft. They occurred in the, the, the grocery stores and the supermarkets because those were the ones that were functioning. That's where people were moving uh, during the lockdown period. And before we knew it, they had spread into the community. Staff had spread it amongst themselves, spread it to the customers, customers took it to the community. It was already widespread. 
I'll give you an example of the Eastern Cape. From one funeral in Zwili, 10 people became infected. One person infected 10 others. One of those 10 happened to be a prison warder, and that prison warder took it back, and when he became infectious, he spread it to the other prison warders and spread it to the prison inmates. So now we had 29 cases in the prison. The prison warders then took it back home, spread it to their families. We got 33 cases in the community from where the warders come. It happened a visiting family in Ndansane happened to be there at the time. They got infected and they took it to Ndansane. Before we knew it, this virus had spread. Hundreds of people had become infected. So the rapidity with which this virus spreads, the rapidity with which it grows, and before we know it, it has already spread because the spread occurs before you are symptomatic, is what puts us in the back foot. And countries that have tried to deal with this epidemic have found themselves continually on the back foot. That we are always sort of fighting a rear guard action. We've been fortunate in this country. We got ahead of this disease initially. We put in place the processes, we went into the communities, we looked for the cases, we found them. But now that we have eased our lockdown and we have reached a stage now where you know, the, the movement of people is important to rebuild our economy, to make sure we can get on with our lives. We recognize we are going to have to live with this viral threat for many months, if not years. There's no guarantee we're even going to be able to make a vaccine. I'm optimistic that we'll have a vaccine. But, you know, I've been working for over 30 years on an HIV vaccine unsuccessfully. So... We have to accept that science takes time and to be able to make that vaccine takes time. So until we have a cure or a vaccine, we're going to have to learn to live with this threat. As we live with this threat now, we will see over the next few days, the number of cases occurring in South Africa will rise rapidly. We will see uh, a growth in the overall epidemic, and now it is growing in almost every part of the country. There's almost no province that's been uh, accepted. It's growing everywhere. And it, it, we, we knew this. It was, it's not a surprise. We, I even said that when I presented it before. I said, you know, we'll flatten the curve, but as we ease our restrictions, we're going to see it rising up again. And it is. I called it at the time the difficult truth. And now we are living that difficult truth that the cases are going to rise. As these cases rise, my mathematical modeling colleagues tell me we can expect to see the peak of infections sometime around August, late July, August. I look at the numbers, I think they quite right, that we will now see over the next six to eight weeks a continual rise 
maybe, yeah, maybe a little bit shorter than that. And as that rises, that rise occurs, and as the epidemic grows, we are going to have a situation where uh, the numbers will become large. And why do I say that? The epidemic is doubling now at about 12 days. So if today we have 150,000 cases, in 12 days' time, we're going to have 300,000 cases. In another 12 days' time, we're going to have 600,000 cases. In another 12 days' time, 36 days from now, we're going to have 1.2 million cases. So you see how, in a matter of 36 days, you go from 150 to 1.2 million. So we hope that we can slow it down again. We hope we will achieve that goal of just slowing it down, reducing that doubling time again. And if we do, we'll push out the peak. If we don't, that peak will arrive somewhere at the tail end of July, first two weeks of August. Once that happens, we'll get a little plateau that will occur. It'll flatten off. And as as we are able to start dampening down the outbreaks that will occur, because it's going to it's going to break out everywhere. I mean, the first place, of course, is all the hospitals are going to get get it right because all the patients are going to go there. They're going to spread it to the staff. Staff are going to get infected. They're going to spread it to other staff. I mean, it just it just goes like that already. You go to the Western Cape. You know, one third of the staff are either sitting at home in isolation or in quarantine. Right? Because remember, your healthcare workers are your equivalent of your firefighters. Everybody else is running away from the virus. The healthcare workers are running to the virus. We're going there to care for the patients. So we're going to get infected. Even with all of the protection, there will be some of us who will get infected. So as that occurs, and as we deal with it at at that peak, if we can keep that peak within a matter of, you know, within the capabilities of the healthcare service or close to that, we would have done well. And then we will start seeing the number of cases decline. We would wait for a period of 14 days of continuous decline before we would declare that we are now in a situation where the threat is clearly receding. And when we would then go into a situation eventually that we will call it containment. Containment means that we'll still see cases, but they will be sporadic and there will be little outbreaks. And that's what we will try to deal with. And you you might have heard last week that China is now back to lockdown because they had this big outbreak in Beijing. My colleagues in Singapore who thought they had it under control, they got an outbreak in, in, in the migrant hostels. Uh, our colleagues in South Korea are dealing with a new outbreak there. So you will never be rid of this virus until there's a cure or vaccine. Even after we hit our peak and we deal with all of that, we're going to have to switch to the eighth stage of the eight stages of the response that I described, and that's vigilance. We're going to have to be vigilant. We're going to have to continue wearing our mask, keep our social distance, wash our hands, and we're going to do so much more religiously. And even though we'll we'll be fatigued, even though we'll be fed up, 
I'm, I'm fed up with this, I'm fed up with that. We're gonna to have to just think to ourselves, is my being fed up reason enough that I'm willing to put myself at risk? And I hope we'll come to the conclusion that being fed up is being much better than sitting in a hospital bed with this disease. I think we have all the wherewithal in this country. We have the fighting spirit. We have the ability to work with each other. We'll, we'll, we'll differ. I mean, it's in the nature of us to differ and to, to, to cross swords. But at the end, we all understand we're in this together. And we've got to find a way that we work together. And we are. I mean, I'm, I'm amazed. You know, we'll, we'll find a way past the little, little bumps on the road. Because at the end, it's not going to be just about us. It's going to be about us as a nation. And the extent to which we can protect that will define how prosperous we will be in the post-peak era. Professor Karim, we value the feedback that you've given us today. And as you've highlighted, rather be fed up because at least it means that you have some form of life within you and not in a hospital bed. We thank you for a very realistic outlook and uh, reminding us that again, we need to adapt in terms of our behavior and really acclimatize to this new normal that we're living in. And I guess what I'd also like to emphasize with the audience is that South Africa is not alone in this pandemic. Whilst we might not be at the levels that New Zealand might be at at the moment, but we are certainly following the necessary protocols, implementing the necessary measures, and that there's a concerted effort to make sure that we are globally competitive in our response, but also equally locally relevant. Professor Salim, it's been a great pleasure engaging with you today, and we thank you for your time. We thank you for your feedback, and most importantly, the contribution that you're making to South Africa's healthcare system in response to COVID-19. We look forward to seeing you again in our next webinar. Until then, keep safe and take care. The views expressed are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily represent the views of the firm and should not be taken as advice or recommendation. Investec Wealth and Investment, a division of Investec Securities Proprietary Limited, is an authorized financial services provider and member of the JSC.